Welcome to the Rick Roberts School of Laughs podcast, where we aim to make you bigger, better, and more bookable. From the aspiring comedian to the part-time pro, this is the podcast for you. We'll talk all things comedy from the page to the stage. And now, it's showtime. This is Rick Roberts here at the School of Last Podcast. This week, a lot of fun for me. I'm typically doing the one-man banquet entertainment deal, but I'm in a great uh, Laugh Fest comedy festival up here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Two weeks long. I don't know how many comics are on this thing all together, but like 40 or something. And I'm here with James P. Connolly. Very funny, clean comic as well. Lives out in California. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself in a nutshell. How long you've been at this? Well, first of all, let's just call me Professor James B. Connolly, since this is a school of comedy. Yes. Professor Professor Connolly. Emeritus. Uh, actually, I've been doing this 18 years now, and I started out, I actually started in L.A. I'm the anomaly. That is strange. I, most people come from somewhere else, come to L.A. I didn't know any better. I was just there. So were you born and raised out in California? Born in California, yeah, raised in California. Went to school East Coast, spent some quality time. Right on the East Coast. I uh, went to school, and I went to Harvard and Boston, out in Cambridge. Nice. And uh, paid for by the United States Marine Corps. Even better? Yes. Well, yes, for them. And they got that. <laughs> and the Marine Corps took the liberty of sending me all over the world. So That's cool. And you yeah. said, I like that. I like to travel, so I'm going to do comedy. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, the Marine Corps sends you to such beautiful locations. Yeah. They're like, here's your spoon, here's your knife, here's your water. Right. Let's see what it looks like in the daytime when exactly. I'm not sneaking in. <laughs> That's awesome. So 18 years. Yep. And did you always start out clean, or did you kind of evolve into that and find that's what you gravitated towards? That's a good question. When I started out, there was like a comedy contest in some bar in Hermosa Beach, and I put together a set of something, and one of it was kind of a graphic story. It's a true story that happened to me. And so I went to do that, and I get on stage, and I made my friends laugh, and I get on stage, and I'm telling the story. And as I'm telling the story, people are just looking at me with this look of like, they're kind of laughing, but their face was telling me, (laughs) but why are you saying that? (laughs) Right. And that's when it finally dawned on me that, like, yes, that's a funny story, but what people see, I have a real all-American baby face, that's not what, I, I ruined it for them. Yeah. So it was a mental note, I'm like, yeah, that's funny, and I like those stories as much as the next guy, but that's not what, how I normally express myself. So that was the first huge learning curve of, you know, be me and not, don't worry about uh, trying to impress anybody else or try to get their attention with something that's not really me yeah i had a similar thing where uh, i mean i was never filthy dirty but anything that was kind of in that area yeah. they just kind of looked at me like where'd that nice guy go exactly why'd you just betray me yeah so then i'm like well if i'm only gonna have to stick to the clean stuff then i gotta yeah. find a way to make that stronger and funnier yeah. and, and pump it up a little bit yeah. and uh, work on the salesmanship of it too you know you yeah. can't just sit down and kind of recant you got to kind of deliver you know exactly I, for me i found that because i like words i'm a little over eloquent at times so I like the more I can write around it and make it sound like it's supposed to sound. This could sound beautiful, but then the actual topic is just as graphic. Right. And that way, people look at me and I'm like, "Well, when you say it that way, right. it almost sounds like it's not." It's like <laughs> yes, but it still is, but it's not. Right. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And then I saw a little bit of your show last night, and of course, your voice is very distinct. It's a very. I mean, you should have a podcast, not me. The way your no, voice sounds, no, it sounds no. awesome. So, uh, but you use that to your advantage in your act. You have a few bits about how you sound, which I yeah. think is always important for young comics, whether it's something physical or the way you look, whatever it is, to talk about it because the audience is thinking about it. Well, that's, that's something I learned too. People would come up to me and they hear me on Sirius XM all the time or a lot of the radio shows. And the one thing everybody comments on is, and it didn't even dawn on me, was the sound of my voice, the timber, the way I. So, I, you know, someone said to me, like, don't take this the wrong way, but I don't need to see you to enjoy you because you deliver everything in your voice so 
that's when I started to have a love affair with my own voice. Yeah, so th- did that actually make you kind of put more bits into your stage Yeah, maybe show? just think about, yeah, just uh, uh, referencing it and dealing with it because I would mention it, people in the audience would nod and look at me like, yeah, that's what we, mm-hmm. you know, which helps me on the radio because then it helps me separate from people because the, uh, I was one time getting a cup of coffee at like an AM, PM somewhere and I was standing next to a buddy of mine who's a local news reporter and he's used to people all the time coming up to him. So I ordered a cup of coffee and the guy looked at me and he goes, excuse me, and I assumed they were talking to him and they're like, are you a comedian? <laughs> and I was like, I, wasn't that funny the way? But he's, he'd heard me on his car like two days before. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and he heard me yeah, order really coffee. Stuck. And he was like, I'm like, yes, that, I, drink, I drink coffee. <laughs> that's pretty cool. So um, uh, there's a few things we can talk about here. You know, any tips when, when guys first start? We talked last night. Yeah. We're both in a similar situation with young families. And uh, we, had, we both had to go find a, an office space somewhere. Oh, nine, yeah. 15 minutes away just so yeah. we could focus. So when you approach writing, you, you approach it. I'm going, to, I'm going to work out or whatever. I'm going to head over to the office and write. Yeah. Is it, do you have days where you're going to work on topical stuff or days where you just take what you have and try to develop it further? Do you go back and refer to your notes from previous shows? What's I do both. Like I listen to, because I live in L.A. and you have to drive to the gigs, I, every show I take, and it uh, helps me keep track of stage time as well because they're running clock, but I tape it, and then on the drive home I listen to it. and then But I'll listen to it again the first thing the next morning. And I take notes of what I liked, what I hated, and what I didn't like about what I did. And I keep track of that stuff so that I have something to go after when I sit down to write. But what I try to do now is just pick a time and try to prioritize and just get in. Uh, before I answer anybody's email, before I do anything, I get in the office. And then uh, I try, to the best of my ability, to so just say for the next hour, I'm going to write. Anything. doesn't matter what it is. I may even write about how much I hate writing. Right. But I'll write. So that the first hour I generate, and then I'll go to the emails, and then I'll go to maybe 30 minutes of social media if I can squeeze that in too. So then I have something. It just If I do something first like that, right, it sticks in my brain all day. Mm-hmm. So I could be wandering. I could be talking to you in the background of my hard drive. I'm still mulling over stuff, right. and then that helps me sometimes. Then I'm brushing my teeth before the set, and my brain will finish the joke that I've been working on all day in my subconscious. So I've, I know my brain is get it in first, get it in by myself. Then I can talk to other comics about it. I can kick it around. But it's important for me to do that. So I try as, as best I can. But I'm like any other human. I get in there and the last thing I want to do is just sit right. there by myself and start writing. No, but I think it's great to get it in early. Because I think most comics, I mean, no, when I first started, once you start traveling a lot, the only time I had to write was in the car right. in between all the one night. Which is really safe when you're driving yeah. in the car. And <laughs> or late at night as you're drifting off to yeah. sleep, you think of something and you jot it down. Yeah. Uh, but to make a point to get to the first thing in the morning, that's brilliant to have it circling around all day long. Well, it's just, I, you know, I think comics ask me, you got to figure out how you work. Mm-hmm. And I know me, I, I just, if I get it in early, like if I get up in the morning, I can spend all night and do stuff around the house. So I can talk to people, other humans. And it's just, it's burned in my head now. So then before the show, when I go over it, I'm just kind of finessing it in my mind. But, uh, but then when I get on stage, I'll abandon everything I thought of that day based on what I see in front of me. Right. Yeah. So it's like, to me, somebody asked me, I said, to me, it's like a quarterback. I'm prepared for the defense. I put the game plan in place. I know what I want to do tonight. I know what's important to me to get out there. And then when I get there, I'm, you can make an audible on the spot. That's funny you say that because in one of my classes I talk about exactly that. Like all your jokes are your plays. Mm-hmm. You can't run the exact same plays every no. single game. The, the opponent's going to be different. Yep. You know, it might be a younger crowd, older crowd, shorter set. You might be the backup quarterback. You only get in for eight minutes. Yep. So, I mean, we're doing different, you know, 18 minute sets yep. at this festival and last night and eight. 
And so it is kind of working on the fly and try to get the best show for that particular audience. Mm-hmm. And not just, like you say, what you worked on that morning and, and try to force it in there. I mean, I am stubborn. And I'm, I always try to, like, figure out a way to do impose my will. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you know, a subtle adjustment. Just to, Sometimes it's a simple adjustment. And then I can go right back to doing what I wanted to do. But that little adjustment just means that now I can do it. Whereas before, it just wasn't going to work. Yeah, sometimes it's just, just little pauses, little things yeah. in between. Get, Thinking on stage is my favorite place to write sometimes. Yeah. You know, after I've got all my laughs and tagged it a couple of times, I'll say one more thing and see if I can get it a little bit further down the line. Yeah. And one, sometimes those things can just turn it into a whole other three-minute bit, like you open up a whole other door. So I think it's important for the aspiring comic that's listening in to know that you have your game plan, but you've got to kind of mix it up. And yeah. Give yourself, I always like in the middle of the set to give myself a chance to walk around and, and think of some stuff and, and play. Oh, yeah, game. that's that's my favorite part. I mean, that's what, I love like a, a set where I have plenty of time to open up strong, Plenty of time to mess around in the middle and then know I'm going to finish out on something that I have confidence in. But yeah, that middle time is like, that's why when they put out a new show, they, you know, they used to book it like Seinfeld first, then the new show, and then Cheers. Because right. it's like, in the middle, we're going to give it, we're going to experiment. Right. But if you watch all three, you're going to have a good time. Yeah. I'm going to ask you too, I know when I, when I came up the ranks, when I get to the middle spot, you're always trying to rock it so hard that you get moved up to the headliner mm-hmm. spot. And I, I honestly had a, probably a good chunk of time where I wasn't working new material in there I was just doing the greatest hits right and I felt like for a year or two there when I was trying to get moved up I wasn't using the opportunity to work in the new material then when I got moved up okay now I've got to work the stuff back in and do yeah. an hour instead of 30 or whatever it was so um, do, do you constantly I mean you write constantly and you're always trying to get on stage and get new sets but is there um, a time when you get a joke where you like it and you kind of retire it from your you know open mic nights or whatever that stuff and say it's going to be in my show and you don't work on it in those open mic night type situations anymore? I mean, I'm always rotating stuff, but there's jokes that I write that I that are good enough to go in the, my act and they work fine and I love them, but mentally I know it's unfinished to me. Mm-hmm. And even if I can't find that place, I'll still bring it in first time, first team. And it might sit in my act for a couple of years, but I know I, there's something missing. And then every now and then it'll strike me again and I'll go back and revisit it. And then maybe two years later, I'll figure out that piece mm-hmm. and I'll talk to my friends and they go you're obsessing over it. I said no it's a good bit but I know it's unfinished and so it's it works right. but I'm the one that knows and then when I close it out with something I'm like and that's something I could have thought I could, it couldn't access that thought two years before but after like a couple of years of stuff and other things going on then yeah. all of a sudden you just and sometimes like you said you just blurt it out one day on stage and you're like oh my god that's the answer yeah like they didn't dawn on me it's funny like that. I always tell my students, don't throw any of your notebooks out. Yeah. You know, throw them in a milk crate somewhere. And when you go on vacation or sitting by the pool and you got some time to look at it again, look what you did two or three years ago. And you probably had a good idea, but you've developed so much further, especially in the beginning. Yeah, I used to do that. And then what I do is I have stacks of notebooks. Like, I'd get rid of these things. So I'd sit back and I'd just start skimming them. And mm-hmm. anything that struck my fancy, I'd take it, put it in a new notebook, right. throw out the old book after a while. But I'd be surprised. I'd go, that's a great idea, but I was not in a place to write it then yeah. and now I'm like that's brilliant what the hell's that doing sitting in a book for five right. years right yeah another thing too do you find that sometimes you have like a really isolated simple a joke with maybe a couple of laughs but it's not a bit yet mm-hmm. and then you find you know two years later you've got another joke in that same area and now this can yeah. lead to that and pretty soon you have a, a three or four premise yeah. bit and yeah I feel more justified doing those jokes than just doing the one off quick one liner because yeah. you still got to set up and then reset for your next thing but when I find I can group them together, 
it pays off. I started grouping just to save, because I used to re-memorize headline sets all the time in different orders, and I was having like mental breakdowns for shows, and finally I said, you know what, I'm going to group this set into about five topics, five groups mentally for me, and a lot of times I'll take a bit, and I'll attach it to something that I know it's not going to be there, but it's like, but you're going to be attached to this to give yourself life, to get on stage, to make it seem like it belongs somewhere near there. Until it becomes a bit on its own, right. and then I break it off, and then I look at it, and I go, okay, this is actually really about this. This has nothing to do with the bit it's attached to, but I've been getting away with it because it's decent. Right. And then once it's on its own, I try to look at it and go, well, this is actually, it's not about, say I have a joke about, uh, you know, Pompeii, Italy, and the volcano. That's always been in the section I was talking about. Southern California weather, because people ask me about that all the time. Mm-hmm. But that's really not what that bit's about. But then when I finished it, I pulled it out of there and made it more about, you know, what would you do if you had a split second to live on this planet? It's really what that bit's about. Right. So then it, now it can stand up on its own, because that's a self-contained thought. Yeah. So a lot of times when I do stuff, I know it's just a short-term, short-term relationship. The breakup's going to happen soon. Got to explain to the other bit. You're no longer going to be sharing time with this bit. <laughs> right. It wasn't you. It was me. Yeah. <laughs> I changed. I've grown into a new person. You, need, you deserve somebody You better. deserve somebody better. You know what? You're going to be a great bit without me. Because now right. you don't have to lean on me. You know, maybe 10 years from now, I'll break up with this other bit. <laughs> I know. Maybe I'll rewrite it. We can all be in the greatest hits album together. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking of my jokes like kids. Like, okay, I, I brought this one along and I put two yeah. little brothers next to it. and it's. But now I'm going to break it off, like you say, yeah. and see how it stands on its own. And then a lot of times, too, um, where you put it in your set. Like, I found out early on that I can do some physical stuff on stage, but they don't want to see that in the first, yeah. let's say, in an eight, 18-minute set like last night. I didn't want to put it in the first five minutes right. because... They don't know you enough to react to it. Yeah. And it took me years to figure out that once they've warmed up to me, I can move that physical stuff, or if it's an impression or a mm-hmm. voice, further back. And the more they like me, the more they'll, they'll give me the leeway to do all that stuff. But if I open up with yeah. it, it almost looks like you're trying too hard. Well, I, I 100% agree. I tell people, too. It's like, you know, you get them to like you, and you can do anything you want to. You can betray them because they like you. Right. And I have some bits that are a little more... Not risque, but they might push people a little bit to the, a little more discomfort. And I have to backload them just enough. It's harder in a short set. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you really have got to get them to like you because at some point I'm going to take a hard right turn. And I want them to go with me anyway they don't want to. Right. And then you bring them back to a little more happy place. And then a few minutes down, I'm going to go right back down that same place again. Yeah. And I think that's cool, too. I mean, when I talk about doing clean comedy, people are like, how can you be clean the whole time? What, you don't have an extra gear to kick it into. But when you can change their emotion, the way they feel about you on stage yeah. and play with that, then that, it almost takes it into a, a true artist performance level at that point where you're making them feel things and yeah. they like, you know, they're, they're, it's that constant misdirection, you know, but you've taken it to a different level where they, right. they kind of have the idea of who you were. But man, I didn't think you could go there. But I see his point and bring him back around. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool. Um, one thing I like to ask too, and we're not always influenced by the people that we grew up listening to. I mean, my favorite guy was Steve Martin, oh, yeah, Bill Cosby, too. and those kind of guys. Um, Eddie Murphy too was a big one of course when I was young but none of that shows through in my act that's yeah. just people I gravitated to but when you were growing up out there in California I mean you're close to the heart of it all out there so I mean I'm sure you had some comics that you grew up listening to and well when I was like I grew up mostly as a teenager up in San Francisco and that was a huge comedy scene uh, when I was growing up I mean and it was just they had a great it was like Boston and San Francisco were sending comics back and forth all the time and so we would listen to the morning show and had a great comedy there it was just, it was Joe Bennett in the morning, 
and they had that's where you know, Dana Carvey, Bobby Slayton, Bobcat Goldthwait, all those guys were coming through all the time. And we'd go to sit in the studio audience and we'd listen to them. And they're all little comedy clubs were exploding all over San Francisco. So that was great because these guys, that's where they were farm, you know, farming their new material. So it was just awesome to listen to all those guys. But of course, I was a huge fan of Robin Williams and Steve Martin. And yeah, yeah. I just, you know, couldn't get enough of those. Spinning those albums was awesome. Yeah, Steve Martin to me was just, and I really thought when I started, and I didn't know I was ever going to do comedy until. I went to an open mic night not known as for comedy. I went to play guitar the first time. <laughs> and then I got done, the guy's like, it's a comedy night. And I was mortified. I, I literally almost passed out. I'm like, what did I just do? But I sat around and watched all these guys do it. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll come back and I play guitar in college. I'm like, I'll do some, some songs and some stuff. And I always thought that that would be the route I would go. But the more you try that, you realize how hard of a road that was that he accomplished all that stuff. Yeah. And that book he had, Born Standing Up, it's incredible, that whole journey. But to pull off what he did, it makes me so mad now that he doesn't go back and do any stand-up. Well, you know, someone told me, though, if you go see his banjo uh, group play, mm-hmm. that in between songs, he does stand-up. Uh-huh. And so they said it's really awesome because you get to see the musicality, but then in between, he's doing Steve Martin stuff, and the band is kind of his straight man. And I was like, well, now I want to go see. Yeah, and you know, he comes through Nashville like three times a year, yeah. too. And I, so I'm going to make that a list, a priority on my list. Um, when you were out in Harvard... Uh, did you see any comics out in that area? Did you ever go to a comedy club before you started doing it? Like, you know, there's a Catch a Rising Star that came into town, but I didn't really go. Uh, I didn't really. Didn't I think I, did. I went a little bit in San Francisco when I was a teenager, but I didn't really go back east at all. And I think uh, I didn't go until I got out to L.A. Until I decided I wanted to do comedy. And I remember I took a girl on a date, went to the comedy store, and I just sat there and watched the guy in the original room. And I was just mm-hmm. like, I was just riveted, and I was like, I'm gonna do that. I can do that. And I think it was her worst date for her because I just emotionally detached from her and I was just sitting there going, okay, this is doable. This right. is doable. And the guy was killing, but I kept thinking, I can do this. So, Did you have any opportunities in the military to do anything? Oh, yeah. I'm actually, I started in the Marine Corps. That's how I got started stand-up. I worked for a colonel and he had all, we were in Desert Storm and they had all these reserve officers attached to us. He wanted to have like a, a, a dinner to bond the unit together, but he wanted to roast all the officers. So I was working for him and he called me in and he asked me, to write him jokes. Of course, when a colonel asks you to do something, He's that's not a request. Right. That's a or direct order. Make me funny tomorrow, Lieutenant Conway. <laughs> so I went and I grabbed some of the other lieutenants. I said, look, we're, we get to skewer all these guys that we don't like. And the colonel's going to say it. So you can say anything you want to because it's coming out of his mouth. Right. So we just lit up these people. And I submitted these things in. And then about two hours before the dinner, I get a call. I said, the colonel needs to see you right away. And I was like, oh, Jesus. I crossed the line. <laughs> I'm like, I'm... I get in there and it's the colonel and a couple other senior officers and they, they, they asked me, they wanted to go over the jokes with me. Like, how did you see this being delivered? Oh, wow. And I was like, you want tips? I'm like, so I was up there and I was showing him and he killed and the colonel killed That's and awesome. all people were just shooting me the stink eye because they know exactly where it came from. That's great. So I thought, okay, if I, if I survive this outing, when I get back, I'm going to do this. That is too cool. And yeah. then, and now that you're doing comedy full time, do you do any of the um, overseas stuff for the troops? Or yeah, you know it's important to me. I work with a group in, in Hollywood called the Veterans in Film and Television. I'm on the advisory board, and I do a big annual benefit every year on Veterans Day called Cocktails and Camouflage. We raise money for veterans organizations, and uh, done a lot of troops, you know, trips overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I like it just because I did it when I was younger. And to go back out there and, and, you know, I can relate to these guys. I spent 14 months in the Middle East, and I know what it's like to, to a degree what they are going through. So that means a lot to me to go do it. But uh, and just, you know, helping out whenever I can. If I get a call from a veterans group, like, what's your fee? I'm like, right. fly me out there, pay my expenses. I have nothing else going on. I'm happy to help out. You know, right. Give my fee to somebody else. 
That's so, cool. Yeah, it's it's fun for me. I mean, they and it's nice because they appreciate the fact that I was in, even though it's not it's not a huge part of my act. Yeah, I was going to ask that. It's, it's just, I mean, I mentioned it a little bit on stage, just because the fact that nobody. I mean, you you're staring at me now. No one looks at me and goes, "Marine." It just doesn't happen. <laughs> so I live with that all my life. Yeah. But I was like, uh, I'm a small man. The big voice. That's how. You, I and you think that kind of gives you a quicker likability to those guys? No. It's instant credibility, right. and then you still have to be comedically funny, obviously. But uh, but it's when I talk to them, if I live interact with the audience, I can ask them specific questions, right. and I know when they're BSing me because I know exactly what the truth is. So uh, that's, that's kind of pretty fun. cool. That is fun. And I went in one time. We did this show in Iraq, and it was like a 10 a.m. show at the Joint Command Center, and we're rolling in, and it's seated like a. It almost looks like a tribunal from like a. Planet of the Apes. It was all the they all the seats were stacked up one behind the other, and it was looking down at this like pit. Oh man! And at all the generals and colonels with their laptops, no microphone, and we were supposed to do a show to entertain them. So they're actively like doing war, right? And they're so they're asked to shut their laptops, and everyone just kind of looks at us like we're annoying. And this one general wouldn't shut his laptop, and none of the comics wanted to go. Right. Nobody wanted to go first. I said, I'll go. I said, this is a corporate gig. You just got, you got to, yeah. I'm going to take down the alpha male. <laughs> That's right. So I got in the room, <laughs> and I opened up, and I started talking, and people are half listening to me, and I said, who's the senior officer here? And everybody kind of looked around nervously, and the general kind of looked at me, and I said, you are, sir? And I just went right up to him, and I said, I thought you'd be taller. And the place went ballistic. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I kept on him to close his laptop, and yeah. I wouldn't let him go. And I had a blast. And then they had a great time. And I was just like, you know, that's in a, particularly in a corporate environment, anything, you got to figure out what's the authority in the room right. and you got to take it down immediately. Your style, not, you know, don't try to be a jerk about it unless yeah. you're a jerk. Good luck. But that was like awesome because in the end, it was like I was communicating to him, it's my room for 10 minutes. Right. We'll do this playfully, but it's my room yeah. and, and we're going to have fun. Yeah. And, you know, and as a guy who used to be in the Marine Corps, to walk up to a general, who has no authority over anymore, and I go, do me a favor, just stop working. Right. <laughs> that was the request. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And it, uh, that is important, too, is, you know, some of these people listen, go in, and, you know, the corporate gigs are where you're basically in front of a, a cold audience, and sometimes the management, mm-hmm. the CEO is sitting at the head table, and everybody is looking to see if he's laughing. Yeah. And it's, it is like, take out the alpha male, if you, if you win him over. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, it can be intimidating when you first start coming mm-hmm. to to ask for anything because you're happy for the gig. Right. But as you move forward, you got to realize, and I tell the, the guys now, I want to know who's bringing me up. I'm going to show them my introduction. I'm going to tell them how important it is that he just says these few sentences. Yeah. Because as soon as he strays off, well, I hope this guy's funny because we got him this. We got you guys, the comedian, instead of presence this year for right. Christmas. I mean, I've had some of the worst things where they, there was one coal company that I went to do a show for. It's Christmas, and a friend of mine had done it the year before. He says, they're an awesome crowd. They're great. And um, he only did like 15 minutes the year before. Then they gave him all these presents to everybody. I mean, they had big screen TVs and VCRs. Right. And then I walk in and there's, there's no presents up there. And the guy goes, you're doing an hour for us. I'm like, okay. So I'm about 10 minutes into it and there's no laughs at all. And then so I'm like, so uh, a friend of mine was doing comedy here last year. He said it was a great time. I just, he said you gave away a lot of presents. And one guy in the crowd goes, yeah, but instead they wanted you to do an hour. <laughs> and I took all the presents away. And I said, I don't cost that much. I know what they're yeah. But that's what they, that resentment was. And so I was able to finally break yeah. that ice. And Once you figure it out, yeah. And then I'm like, okay, so this was the equivalent of a microwave. That joke was the equivalent of a yeah. microwave bubble. And I'm giving it back piece by piece. See, that's brilliant. That's exactly what they need. And I actually, I brought enough CDs. I gave everybody a CD yeah. for free. I'm like, at least you take this. They probably just put it yeah. up for target practice. Like, went that's back funny. at me twice. 
but yeah, it's, it's funny how you got to take those guys out, you know. And that's a and that's a conscious decision to make some of those moves outside the comedy club. I try to explain to the people that take the class that clubs are essential at the beginning because there's nowhere else you're going to get those repetitions right. and all that stuff. But there's a lot of things you can do off of that once you have your comedy set down. Yeah. We were talking last night, you do some hosting, some MC. Yeah, I do a lot of hosting for a lot of big corporate events, and that just kind of, you know, I kind of grew into doing that. And uh, I love it because it's a, it's great flexing the muscle of, like, writing stuff when you get there, figuring out what's going to happen, you know, coming up with comedy bits on the fly, and then just committing to them because you don't have an option. Right. There's no, you know, there's no choice. It's like, it. <laughs> yeah, you're just going, that's a funny idea. He said that. That'd be a great idea. And, you know, when I do stand-up, I'm a little more cautious because I have time to write and experiment. And, but when I'm doing those, it's weird because you think of it the other way around. Stakes are higher. Right. Job's on the line when you do this. But it's, I have no fear because I have no choice. You know, right. this it's, it's a solid idea. I know I can. And I sell it harder. And sometimes it's in the salesmanship. Then you blurt out something and then all of a sudden it becomes this running gag for three days and you're like man I had nothing this morning right and I showed up and I saw this and someone made a comment and I didn't know that background information all of a sudden your brain connects it and you're just like go with it and then how do you pre-prepare like pre-event do you send some kind of questionnaire do you do some phone conference calls no you know I really try to what I tried to do is come up with my own formula because I didn't want to duplicate anything that anyone else does I wanted to figure out how would I do this so I just kind of came up with my own areas that are interesting to me when I go into do it. I mean, I learned about the company, obviously. You want to mm-hmm. kind of figure out what they do. And if, if it's structured and there's presenters with bios, I get that because if I'm bringing them up. And uh, um, a, lot, a lot of times they'll give me their bio, but I'll go dig deeper on the Internet because you, you can find out information. Right. And so sometimes I'll use that against them after they speak. I give them a little courtesy up front, mm-hmm. but on the backside I might come in, you know, go, you didn't know he also, and then I'll you know, hit them on the way out. But I, I try to just figure out my own background information, use part of my act, come up with a template. So when I go in, I feel like, okay, I have a plan. Mm-hmm. And then once I get on the ground, that's when I start adjusting, paying attention, seeing what they're actually doing. Uh, listen, I actually listen to the speakers. I highly recommend. Some of the greatest moments I've ever had is because I listened to everything that person said. And to my comedic brain, it made no sense in the plane of reality. Right, and it did to them. Then I go up and I kind of reset the room and go, I know, but this, and so, and they look at me like, well, that's a hell of a normal thought. Like, it, so I enjoy that part. I had the guy who was one of the most brilliant economists of the day, and he's got these people talking, and he's got one of those old projectors with the, you know, the the paper and the grease pencil. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was like, it is 2014, <laughs> and I and, and he went up there and he had a British accent. It was very serious, and I went up there and, and it was a great presentation. I went on the backside of that, and I just I just I said what everybody was thinking because right. I gave him horrible grief for. For, I mean, like, this is presentation would have been great if this was 1977. Right. <laughs> and, he, you know, and they're not used to guys taking shots at them. Right. But then, but then he, he came back on stage and he goes, I've never used PowerPoint in my life. <laughs> and I said, well, neither have I because, you know, no one's ever asked me to give any presentation of any merit whatsoever. So That's hilarious. So that, I love that part because these are guys who are like heavyweights of industry. I mean, celebrity heavyweights of industry. Mm-hmm. And when they do something stupid on stage, it is my job. To say something. Right. And I'm not mean, but I will give them a hard time as I would have given you in a hard time. So my suggestion is if you can learn to treat these people of authority, not as people of authority, but as your buddy. Right. And you give them the same grief that you would at your friend if your friend tripped or stammered or like I think it was one time with Steve Forbes was talking to like uh, 
Ratan Tata, who's the head of the Tata Group, it's like the biggest company. It's one of the most powerful men in the world. The Tata Motors? Yeah, everything. Yeah. So they're sitting on thing, and they're supposed to begin, and they're just sitting there. And they're not talking. They were wait, Steve Forbes was waiting for some kind of a formal introduction, and I'm in the back, and I just walked out, and I just looked at him, and I went, begin. <laughs> Mr. Tata was laughing his ass. Steve Forbes didn't think it was so funny. He wanted that man. And he looked at me, stared at me, and I said, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> now, the people in the audience are dying, and he shot me the stink guy. I'm like, I get paid by the guy in the other chair. Yeah, and he good. thinks this is hysterical. And I was like, so it's. That's pretty funny. Yeah. And that, that is a great position to be in because you're not on the, on the permanent payroll of the mm-hmm. company that hired you, and you're definitely not on the payroll of the speakers. Nope. And to re, you know, to be, I mean, when they're talking super technical or you know, stuff that you have no idea yeah. about, to be able to recap it in a layman's terms. Yep. I mean, it puts you, look, makes you look brilliant. It does. He just said in two sentences what right. that guy tried to say in one hour. So it's pretty cool. It's, it's a great spot to have. And how often do you kind of mix that in with your performance? And just, I know it's, you can get them when you get them, but uh, in, in I, a month's I, time, do you do a few of those? I'd say at this point, you know, I'm doing like, um, I mean, I'm probably doing like. See, almost. I'm trying to think of the number of the last year. It's pretty frequent. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. still primarily doing nightclub comic, but uh, it, this is more and more. I do this a lot, and they come in spurts. Like right. no, like two months period where I'll do mostly this, and then I won't do one for three months, and then I'll get a huge grouping as well. So that's about thirty-five percent of my year okay. is doing these, the big ones, mm-hmm. and then I get a lot of small ones like hosting awards banquets, things like that. Right. It's because I own a tux. There you go. You know tucks, you're in. I think it's important. Um, I like to study business podcasts and stuff because we're our own businessmen and entrepreneurs and all that kind of stuff. And they keep talking about you never want to be single stream dependent with your income. And when you first start comedy, you kind of have to. You're taking whatever comes in. But yeah. there's a lot of things. This, this The skill of speaking mm-hmm. can shoot off in so many different directions that as long as you find a way to enjoy that, I don't, I don't think it's compromising at all to do other things within that, that yeah. you're using that skill in well, places where people don't have it. I mean, if, there's a demand. If you want to enjoy if you want to enjoy bitterness and depression, I highly recommend taking a single lane track of stand-up comedy. Right. That's a pure that's a path to depression. If you diversify at some point, first time I learned about this, I started doing some corporate events a long time ago and I got all excited. I was making decent money. And I'm like, look at me. And then all of a sudden like there was a, a recession. And I was new to corporate events. And they all dried up, and I was low on the food. So who do you think got squeezed out? Me. So one year, I lost from one year to the next. I lost 60% of my income like that, and I, like, freaked out. And that was my lesson. I was like, you know what, man? I'm going to spread this out. So started, you know, did about five or six different areas where I started to apply myself. Mm -hmm. And then I'm always looking... I'm always looking five years down the road, ten years down the road. I'm projecting what do what's coming my way, what do people keep contacting me about, and I need to set that up going forward. So this won't last forever. I'm in a good place right now, age and experience, but i got to start looking at what's going to happen next and where can I apply myself next and what do people, how they respond to me, and I know I can set that up in ten years down the road. Yeah, super smart. I think it, and then yeah. 15 years from now, I retire and I make my wife go on the road and work. <laughs> That's right. That's why I married a younger woman. She's like, oh, you stay at home now because I'm cashing in when I'm That's older. Right. I'm she like, can be out there heckling the colonel. I'll be out there doing all the, the gated communities of Palm Springs. <laughs> and I'm like, Butch, by the way, are awesome. Hey, I, I, I've done a few of those Del Webb communities. Uh, Del Webb, man. Del Webb is like, you roll in there and first I'm like, I'm driving the desert. And I'm like, yeah. but, and it's like slammed. And everybody's like 55 to 75, and they all paid, and they're all looking to be entertained. 
and the theater's gorgeous. And you look at the people that came before you, and they're all people who were famous like 20 years ago, but they're still big. Right. And and the paycheck was good. Yeah. And I went home, and I'm like, I feel like I drove into some kind of a movie. Yeah, it's definitely and, a yeah, thing. and it's just and they're all you know, and it's hysterical. And you know, I, I've been blown away. But that's where you know all the baby boomers they lock themselves in their communities, and they invite a couple of us in every now and then. And yep, they feed off of our blood. And exactly. <laughs> we're just we're old enough to be accepted. We're not members yet, but we're old enough to where you're like, hey, you you look close. You yeah. come in here. I remember giving a guy such a hard time. I rolled in and parked, and there was a, some guy had macked out his little golf cart, yeah. and he had deer antlers on it. Yeah. So, like, the first thing I said when I got in there, I'm like, hey, before I even get started, somebody's towing away the uh, golf cart out there. It's got the antlers on it, and the whole place goes crazy, you know? So, like, they taking down the alpha male, taking yeah. the elephant in the room, and, and addressing it. And I love those. I do maybe three or four a year, but yeah. I'm not, I don't turn them down. They're fun, uh, yeah. appreciative audience, and... That's just something I want comics to think of when they listen to this podcast. I do this for aspiring comedians and to think about all the opportunities down the road that will be there for you if you stick it out now and get your time yeah. down. Once you get your act and you learn how to write, tons of great things down the road for you. So comedy clubs are great. It's not the only avenue. Yeah. I love comedy clubs because that's like, that's why I spend most of my time still in the club because that, to me it's like you get to keep your sword sharp. And you need to make Absolutely. sure that you are constantly evolving in the most d- difficult environments. Because then when you go in these other places, you're that much better because you're not just getting comfortable in any one environment. So yeah. as much as I hate sometimes fighting for my life in front of a group of people, and I used to do it all the time, it's still important to know that I can still do it if if pushed. Right. And I don't enjoy it. Sometimes they do. I'm like, oh, that was awesome. I'm like, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I tapped in as like a monkey on a hot plate for 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, yeah, I had a good time. That was my goal. But, you know, I wrote stuff. Before I came here, <laughs> well, I think it's cool, and, and I always, t- you know, me and my buddies always talk about keeping it comedy club funny in whatever environment you're doing, like yeah. the level and the the, yeah. the laughs and all that stuff coming at you pretty strong. Although so. I do enjoy sometimes in a corporate environment to go just the other way and really pull it down to where they think, oh my god, this is really going to be serious, and just draw that setup out as long as I can take it. Yeah, yeah. And then when you throw that switch. I'm it's like it. dropping a bomb in the room, and I'm like, come on, what are you talking, I'm not going to do it, like, seriously, I think I was really going to get up here and do, like, a public service announcement. Right, no, that's the bad, yeah. I got a couple of bits where I almost, I don't cry, but I want them to almost, Yeah. and then I hit them with the punchline, yeah. they should have, they, they know I'm a comedian, but, but, but see, for it's a that, second yeah, thing, but, yeah. once they believe you, mm-hmm. I mean, that trust is fun to play with a little bit, you can't go overboard, but that, you know, once you've got them there, you can really twist it around, it's a ton of fun. Well, uh, tell our listeners where they can check you out. You got a website? Yeah, you can go to jamespconley.tv or James P. Conley on Twitter, Facebook. Just uh, jump on board. Cool. Yeah, and uh, big shout out to anybody out here, all the SiriusXM and Blue Collar Radio listeners. Thank you for putting my son through college. I'd like to thank everybody. Yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks, James. I really appreciate you taking your time during Yeah, the commute festival. was pretty far. I got to go down the elevator back <laughs> to my room. I felt comfortable in your room. It's an awkward request when another one says, come to my room. I, I thought mean, about that. Like, can we do this in the lobby? Or, eh. Well, I thought to myself, if there's not a microphone, I'm out of here. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks, bud. We'll see you later. All right. listening to the School of Laughs podcast. For information on upcoming classes, check out schooloflaughs.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a ranking on iTunes. Also, send any questions or comments to schooloflaughs at gmail.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.